Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. One of the things uh, I used to do as a kid, my parents used to bring us along to uh, a holiday, kind of Christian holiday centre called Capenry Hall. I don't know if you've heard of it, up near Lancaster. We used to go every summer. It was a lot of fun. There'd be lots of games and activities. And we as kids, we absolutely loved it. And one of the things they'd do was if you won a competition or some activity or whatever, they'd give you a prize. But if you lost, if you came last, basically the kind of, the thing you had to do, the, the punishment is you'd have to come in front of the whole kind of hall and uh, you'd have to eat a spoonful of Marmite, okay? A spoonful of Marmite. Now, I, I didn't grow up with Marmite in my household, so uh, I don't really know the whole Marmite thing. It was this weird thing English people eat. I was like, what was Anyway, but I just remember the first time seeing, the first time seeing a 10-year-old kid having to eat a spoonful of Marmite and just seeing the, the colour drain from his face as like the taste of the Marmite actually met his taste buds. And I just realised from that moment, because okay, so I do not want to lose any of these competitions because I do not want to have to go up and eat Marmite, right? Now, a few years later, a few more, you know, people having to eat Marmite at the front of, of this, this centre. Someone gets up and they lost one of the competitions. They had to stand in front. They had to get a spoonful of Marmite. And a weird thing happened. The person gives him the, the teaspoon to, to dip into the Marmite. And he says, no, sorry, I'll have, a, I'll have a tablespoon. And I was like, what? Picks up a tablespoon. Tablespoon of Marmite. Eats the Marmite. Chumps it away. And unlike the first time, with you know, colour drained, colour stead. And they have a big smile on their face afterwards. And they're like, I like Marmite. <laughs> And I was like, what is this? Someone likes Marmite? Because by that stage, I actually tasted Marmite myself. And I was like, I mean, how could you actually like Marmite? And I was like, someone likes Marmite. So I go to my parents. I was like, Mom, why do people eat Marmite? My parents were like, look, there's just some questions in life, son, (laughs) that there is no answer to. And why people eat Marmite is one of those questions, all right? So you just have to be content with life, just not knowing the answer to that question. I was like, okay, fine. But Marmite, obviously, it is one of those things we love or hate. Who loves it? A few people love it. We've got a few lovers. And who hates it? We've got a few haters. Yeah, uh, yeah, okay. Um, but it's one of those, you love it or you hate it. And actually, they had a whole advert, a whole ad campaign on do you love it or do you hate it. Uh, so it's one of those things you can't really sit on the fence with, Marmite. You, know, you don't just go, mm, yeah, it's all right. It's one or the other. And you know, I was reading through the book of Acts this week. And if you actually read through the book of Acts, the gospel, certainly in those first few chapters, I don't know, I'm going to compare the gospel with Marmite, but the gospel, it is a bit like Marmite. Like, if you look at it, people hear the gospel and nobody seems to go, yeah, they're either like, yes, Lord, this is what I'm waiting for, and give their lives to Jesus, and they're completely all in, or they're like, this is the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. I am going to kill you all who are believing in the gospel. So it's like, it's all in. It's, it's, it's all or nothing, really. And, and we see that. We see people either get saved and all in, or they oppose it with everything uh, that they have. And we see that in the passage we're going to look at this morning, which is Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. We see two things in this passage. We see success. 
So the gospel bearing fruit, people getting saved left, right and centre, lives being transformed. But we also see opposition. People who are passionately, and I think passionate is the right word, passionately opposed to the gospel and all those who preach it and will do anything to stop it. So we see success and we see opposition. That's what we want us to look at this morning. So obviously we're continuing our series to the ends of the earth, which is going through the book of... Acts, yes, Katrina's on it. Yeah, we're going through the book of Acts. Uh, The story in Acts is still located in Jerusalem by this stage, chapter 5. It does spread out a bit, but we're still in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 5, we're probably, probably about two years after Pentecost has happened. So probably two years after Jesus has sent to go back to heaven, they've had Pentecost, tongues of fire, speaking tongues, and loads of people get saved. And then the church has been steadily growing for these last two years. They've seen lots of healings. They've seen lots of salvations. They've seen lots of church growth, but it's very much still centered in Jerusalem. But what they also see in this two-year period as well is they're starting to see opposition grow as well. So the religious leaders are starting to conspire against them. And I'm going to explain a little bit about the religious leaders a little bit more. But it leads to Peter and John getting arrested. They get released. There's a number of arrests. Then we have this interesting um, story. Uh, interesting is one word. Where uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they get struck down for hypocrisy. And we see that in the passage just before the one we're going to read about. So there's opposition from, like, from outside. There's almost opposition from within. Um, But after Ananias are struck down, and interesting, if you read the last verse before we get to this passage, word began to spread and people were kind of, there was fear about this new group. There was like a respect, a fear, and oh, there's like, oh, God's working here. Something's happening here that spread. So actually the Ananias and Sapphira story kind of helped to spread the news of what was going on. So we pick up the story just after the whole Ananias and Sapphira being struck down for hypocrisy episode in Acts chapter 5 verse 12. So it should appear behind me. Yes, it will. And I will will just read it out here. So you can follow along your Bibles or, or read behind. So the apostles, it says, verse 12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Now I've actually got a picture here, Solomon's colonnade. There we go. So this is the picture of the temple. And you've got all the little houses of Jerusalem in the background. So the temple, I don't know if you can see the scale, was vast. It was huge. It took 84 years to build. Um, and Solomon's colonnade or Solomon's porch are these kind of columned bits round the side. And the believers used to meet every day in there. Nice, shady, it's good. You could just go there, hang out, you know, chat, talk about Jesus. And that's where they would meet. We've got next, next picture. We've got a picture of under the colonnade. So this is what it would look like under the colonnade. In the background, you can sort of see the, the Holy of Holies of the temple. And there was, you know, every day there'd be loads of people milling around here. Just a good place to meet, to talk, to hang out, to, you know, share the gospel, really. And that's where they would meet. So verse 13 continues. Very interesting verse. No one else dared join them. Interesting. Even though they were highly regarded by the people. Now commentators reckon that the reason this is, says no one else dared join them, was it's possible that people were nervous about publicly listening to the disciples preach unless they were ready to actually join them. They're kind of afraid, almost afraid of showing up and the disciples call them out and say, why are you not saved? And they're like, oh, I'm just listening. There seemed to be a little bit of a nervousness around that. But despite the nervousness, nevertheless, verse 14 says, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And as a result, people brought those who were ill into the streets and led them on beds and mats so that at least 
Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. It's amazing, isn't it? Verse 16, crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing those who were ill and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Then verse 17, so we've seen the success, we've seen all the amazing stuff in verses 12 to to 16, then we start to see some of the opposition, verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. Now, just want to briefly explain who the high priest and the Sadducees were. We hear them a lot in the Bible, but we often don't know totally what they're all about. But basically, the high priest was the top religious leader of the Israelites. It was a hereditary position, um, was passed down from Aaron, who was the brother Moses of the Levite tribe. And basically, the, the high priest oversaw the running of the temple. He was like the boss of the temple. He oversaw the running of it. He oversaw all the other priests. And then, and his big, big job once a year on the Day of Atonement was to go into the Holy of Holies, the only person who was allowed to do it once a year, and make sacrifice for the people behind the veil in the presence of God. So that's the high priest. He is the top, top job in all of, of Israel at that time, okay? The Sadducees, the Sadducees were a, a political group. They were basically all men, all upper class, all very wealthy and held all the powerful positions in Israel at the time. Now, most of the chief priests were also Sadducees and the high priest at this time was a Sadducee also. Now, most of the 70 people on the Sanhedrin, that's the amount of people that was on the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel at that time, were Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees, the, the thing you need to get about them was they were more of a political group than a religious group. They were most concerned with keeping the peace with the Romans, the occupiers. They were more political than religious. And because they were wealthy and upper class and spent much of their time trying not to upset the Romans, they weren't very popular with the common people at all. Now, a few beliefs of the Sadducees, okay, because they're different to the Pharisees. Sadducees denied the resurrection from the dead, okay? They didn't believe in that. They believe you were resurrected after they were given a new body. They didn't believe in the afterlife either. They just believed your soul perished as you died, okay? Almost like atheists. They also didn't believe in the spiritual world, didn't believe in demons, didn't believe in angels, anything like that. They were basically a political party rather than a religious group. And the Sadducees left Jesus and the Christians completely alone until they started to get afraid that the Christians and Jesus might bring unwanted Roman attention. And as soon as they thought, okay, the Romans might not like this, that's when the Sadducees got involved, which is probably why the Sadducees are going after the Christians here. Plus also, we see verse 17, jealousy, because the Christians were stealing the religious limelight, so to speak, from them. Okay, so sorry, that was just brief explanation. High priest, Sadducees, we good? We good on Sadducees and high priest? Right, we are done for definitions of them for now. Right, verse 18. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, and as they'd been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent them to the jail for the apostles. Now, can I mention it? The Sanhedrin means council or assembly. It's the supreme court of ancient Israel, made up of 70 men plus the high priest. So that's how many? 
71, yes, 71 people in the Sanhedrin. Mostly Sadducees, but some were Pharisees. And the Sanhedrin met every day in the temple courts, except on festivals and on the Sabbath. And they would sort out religious and political matters. And you can see the kind of the room that the Sanhedrin would have sat, would have been, would have been it, been like. All the people kind of sat around the edge and then the accused would be in the middle. It'd be quite an intimidating place. You know, these kind of 70 guys, arms folded, all sitting around, high priest at the front. What have you done? You know, that kind of a vibe. Verse 22. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find the apostles there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. Like in that picture I showed earlier, they're standing inside, they're teaching the people. At that, verse 26, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned in that big intimidating room by the high priest. They said this, we give you strict orders not to teach in his name, the high priest said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors, Jesus, raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on the cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Then verse 34, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Now, briefly, who are the Pharisees? We've heard lots about them. They don't get a good name in Jesus, in, Jesus in, in, the, in the Bible. Pharisees, unlike the Sadducees, weren't as wealthy. They were mostly middle-class businessmen, leaders of the synagogues. They held the minority of seats on the Sanhedrin, but they seemed to control what decisions came from the Sanhedrin because unlike the Sadducees, the Pharisees had popular support among the people. The people liked the Pharisees, Okay. Now, the Pharisees were big into personal holiness. The word Pharisee actually means separated, separated from the rest of the people. The Pharisees taught that Jews should observe all the 600 plus laws in the Old Testament. We've probably heard of that before. They accepted the word of God, the Old Testament, as inspired by God. But what they also did, and this is what got them in trouble with Jesus, was they also gave equal authority to oral traditions. So they were equal authority to the actual Old Testament, the word of God. And these pharisaical traditions had the effect of adding to the word of God. Um, and that's what Jesus absolutely hammered them for. Unlike the Pharisee, unlike the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed there was resurrection after the dead. They did believe in the afterlife. They did believe in reward. And they did believe in punishment. And they did believe in the spiritual realm and angels and demons. Now, it's not surprising. There was a lot of differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Normally, they hated each other's guts. Normally, they were completely opposed to each other, but they put their differences aside to get rid of Jesus and the Christians. So actually, Jesus and the Christians brought the Pharisees and Sadducees together, like, right, we're going to have to work together to get rid of these guys. And that's what they did. Now, one of the top, top Pharisees was a guy called Gamaliel, who we've just read about here. 
He's a top Pharisee because he was a student of one of the greatest rabbis who had ever lived, a guy called Hillel. Gamaliel was his student, learned everything from him. Gamaliel's also kind of famous because of one of his students. One of his students was a guy called Paul. Saul, well, it was Saul when he was with Gamaliel, but yeah, Paul. So Gamaliel taught Paul, the Old Testament, the Bible, Torah, everything. Yeah, so that's Gamaliel. Now, very respected in this room. So he stands up, verse 35, says he addressed the Sanhedrin. He says this, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So it's an interesting argument, isn't it? It's just like, look, just let it play out. You know, if it's not from God, it'll just fizzle out like all these other little rebellions and things that happen. If it is from God, well, there's no point fighting it anyway. Now, Gamaliel didn't think it was from God. He didn't think God was on their side. But this was what his argument was. Verse 40, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So there you have it. There is the story of success and opposition. Gospel success in those first four or five verses, verses 12 to 16, and then opposition that the apostles faced from verse 17 to 42. And that's what we want us to look at today. Two things, success and opposition. Now, firstly, success, which we see in verses 12 to 16. Um, but before we talk about that, actually, anybody ever seen Saving Private Ryan? The film, Saving Private Ryan? Yes. Um, one of the greatest, I think, World War films ever. The opening 24 minutes has this scene which has been described as the greatest battle scene in a film, like, ever. It's where the, the American soldiers are landing on Omaha Beach on D-Day, um, 1944. Uh, but the difference between Omaha Beach and all the other beaches where the Allies were landing on D-Day was that at Omaha Beach, the, the Allies, their, their, their sea support, the naval guns failed, the air support, the planes that were going to come in and, and help them, they didn't show up. And half their tanks that were supposed to arrive on boats all, all sank before they got there. So basically, you had these American soldiers and they had to go it alone. They had no help, no support. And we read that actually there were 15 times as many men fell taking Omaha Beach than any other beach on D-Day. Why? Because they had to go it alone. And I think often when it comes to evangelism... We can do the same. You know, we can go it alone. And then we come to church and we get a bit G'd up. We're like, come on, let's do it. But essentially, we're going it alone. And actually, when we look at the Bible, what does Jesus say? He says to the disciples, look, wait, wait for the Holy Spirit. He's like, wait for the artillery to arrive, you know. Wait for the big guns to arrive. That's what he says to the disciples. So they do. And the Holy Spirit arrives and the Holy Spirit turns them into these powerful witnesses for Jesus. But it's interesting. The Holy Spirit actually goes one step further. He doesn't just empower them to be witnesses. 
It actually, if you, it says in John 15 that he would actually be the primary witness himself. That's what the Holy Spirit says. He will be the primary witness himself. That's what Jesus says. And I think, you know, sometimes most of our problems in evangelism can stem from the mistaken assumption that we need to persuade God to join our mission. And I mean, that's the mistake that Joseph made in the Old Testament. And an angel come, comes and corrects him and basically says, no, 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 you're fighting on God's mission. He's not fighting on your mission. And I think it's important that we, we get that right. John 15, uh, 26 to 27 says this, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify. Okay, so Holy Spirit, he's the primary witness there to Jesus. We're also witnesses too, but he's the primary one. And unless we understand that the Holy Spirit is the primary witness and we are the secondary witnesses, what's going to happen is we're going to find the Great Commission a bit like the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan. You know, going it alone, hard slog, you know, going it without all the other things that are there to help us. Whereas actually when we go to the Holy Spirit, it's like the Holy Spirit kind of comes in and like... Ah, I don't know what to do, but like, boom, destroys Satan's defenses so that we can kind of march through and lead people to the Lord. You know, that's what we see here in verse 14. It says, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to the number. The Holy Spirit went in, smashed open the, the Satan's defenses and, and people got saved. The disciples were just going in and preach the gospel. It's like, yeah, right. I want to get saved. I want to come to know Jesus. That's what happens. And like when we look at the book of Acts, it's pretty clear when you read through the book of Acts that the church grew rapidly in its early years because the Holy Spirit empowered God's people to perform amazing miracles of healing and deliverance. I mean, we see it verse 16 in our passage here. The crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing those who were ill and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. You know, it's like read elsewhere in, the, in, in, in Acts that like people lined the streets to be healed by Peter. You know, we read that like whole regions in Judea became Christians because a lame man was healed and a woman was brought back to life. Uh, you know, that we, we read about in Samaria, there was, there was great joy in Samaria because of the miracles that they saw. And actually some magician tried to offer money to the disciples. He's like, Look, what do you guys have? I want to buy it, you know? And the disciples like, no, you can't do that. It's never worked like that. But even opponents of the disciples in Jerusalem actually admit, look, everyone in Jerusalem knows that they've done this outstanding miracle. Nobody can deny it. Even their opponents admitted it. It's really interesting. I, I've written this. Phil Moore, I, I've written a commentary on this, says this. Phil Moore says, we, we cannot hope to see such mighty advance for the gospel by merely proclaiming to people that Jesus is king. He says, we need to make room for the Holy Spirit to open up his bombardment to prove that the message we are preaching is true. And you know, I think so often we can fall back into attacking the beaches on our own, don't we, when it comes to evangelism? You know, now, we don't deny the Holy Spirit is involved, but oftentimes what we can do is we can kind of relegate him to a back seat. You know, you sit back in there, put your seatbelt on, I'll, you know, I'll show you where we're going. And it's so easy for us to say, look, that was then, this is now. But, like, the reality is, what could we see if the Holy Spirit really starts to move? 
you, know, you might be sitting here thinking, okay, Andy, really? I mean, we're going to see people queued up and hooting more to be healed? I mean, come on, Andy, this is 21st century, come on. I was like, well, why not? I mean, if you think about it, Jesus was accredited to the world by miracles through the Spirit. And he promised that his followers would be accredited to the world by doing greater things than these. You know, you think, wow, okay, maybe there's a case if we've got to lift our heads and see, wow, God, we're going to make room for you. Would you move in? Would you work? Would you do miracles? Would, you, would we see healing? Would, I'm not even in the church, but would people outside see it? I'm like, what is this? What's happening here? You know, it's often so, so much easier to leave miracles in the history books. You know, you read it in the Bible and think, oh, it happened then. It's safer, isn't it? It's less risky. You don't have to do that awkward thing where you go and offer to pray for someone and like, oh, it's not going to happen. And, oh, well, well, you know, maybe it'll happen sometime. Or you, you don't have to do that. You can just leave that. You don't have to deal with the disappointments. You don't have to deal with all that kind of stuff. You just leave it there. Or the fear. What will people say? What will people think? Or maybe you just think, oh, it's for, it's for superior Christians, not for me. It, it, it's easier to do that. And I, I just want to encourage us, now. let's not do that. I mean, Luke and Peter would disagree with that. It's for superior Christians. I mean, Peter says this uh, when he healed someone. He said this, why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? By faith in the name of Jesus, this man was made strong. So it's, it's in Jesus' name. We call on him. And you know, I, I don't know, I think for me, I, uh, praying for healing, praying for God to move in real faith is something that I, I probably did a lot more of in the past. Um, in church, outside of church as well, really. Um, and I think for me, it's something I've sort of just, I don't know, life's just got a bit safer. I've made life safer and I Take less risks. I don't know what, what am I, 37? Maybe that's what happens when you get your mid-30s or whatever, or 40s or whatever. You just, you play it safe. I don't know. Some of you are thinking, I don't know. I'm not going to say I'm getting old, but like, you know, I don't know. You, you know, you, you're 21. Like, Who cares? Let's go pray for people. What's, you know, I don't know. And I, yeah, so I suppose I'm, for me, I'm just, I'm wanting to pick things up again and actually pray for stuff and to go for stuff. Um, and I loved a couple of weeks ago, we prayed for healing. We just got out there, we just prayed for stuff. We just said, let's, let's do it, let's go for it. And I would love that for us, for all of us to have that, I don't know, that, that life again, that <coughs> be in your bonnet to just see some stuff. I remember John Wimber, pastor of Vineyard, he said, you know, he, he prayed for people to be healed for, for months at his church and nothing happened. And then Stuff did, and it just did, and it happened loads. So there's something of being faithful to God in, in this. Okay, so that's the success side. Opposition is the second thing I want to talk about this morning. So um, obviously, we look at this passage, the religious leaders, they don't just reject the gospel, but they actively oppose it. I mean, they oppose it with all their power, and they're desperate to stop the gospel spreading. I don't know if you look there. So, so they, they throw the apostles in jail. They threaten them. They flog them. They order them not to speak in the name of Jesus. They probably would have tried to kill them if Gamaliel hadn't kind of stepped in. They go to a lot of trouble to stop the gospel message. Now, why do they go to all this trouble? Well, they do explain a little bit in the passage, which helps us. Verse 28 um, the Sanhedrin said to the disciples, look, you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood, which I'm like, okay, fair point, because the disciples, 
They don't hold back in their preaching, do you? Have you noticed that? They basically go to the Sanhedrin, the big intimidating building, and walk in and say, look, you guys killed him, you need to repent. That, that's the message. So that's one reason they're opposed to it. Another reason they're opposed to the gospel is in verse 17. They're filled with jealousy. Like the disciples, they've kind of stolen the religious limelight a bit. You know, they're getting all the, they're getting all the headlines in, I don't know what, you know, church news, newspaper, whatever it is. But, you know, the, 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 they're, the, they're the guys about town. And these guys are jealous. They're, the, the, the disciples are a threat to their position, their power, their identity, their worldview. They're a threat and they want rid of them. And, you know, the reality is for the, the leaders of the Sanhedrin, for them to accept the gospel, there's a lot more barriers. They would have had to acknowledge that they were wrong. They would have had to acknowledge they were wrong about Jesus. They would have had to acknowledge they're wrong about the Messiah. They would have had to acknowledge they're wrong in their understanding of the scriptures. They'd have to probably acknowledge all these things publicly that they were wrong. And they would need to realize they were sinners. They would need to realize they needed to repent. And obviously they didn't want to do any of these things, which is why they opposed it. Why they opposed the gospel. Anyone like hear about these religious leaders and think, you know, I know a few people in my life like that. Anyone know anyone like that? You're completely opposed to Christianity and everything it stands for. Like, I know a few people like that. And you kind of think of these people, there's no way that person would ever become a Christian. Like, there's just no way. Maybe someone in your work, family member, friend, you just, anytime you bring it up, it's complete shutdown. I was reading a, a book recently about a guy who was a bit like that, completely anti-Christianity, a guy called Nabil Qureshi. Anyone heard of him? He, is a, he was a Muslim apologist, guy who basically tried to convert people to Islam. And uh, he became a Christian through a long process. He wrote a book about it called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. I think it's probably one of the best biographies I've ever read. Really good on Audible, good as well. So if you want to listen to it in the car, very nice. Just throwing a little bit of extra in there. But basically, this guy firmly believed Christianity was wrong, firmly believed Islam was the way, um, and fought Christianity. He really went against it, would try and prove to Christians that they were wrong. And then through a, a Christian friend who he has, who kind of looks through the evidence of Christianity and the evidence for Islam, um, looks at all that, um, and through a series of dreams that God gives him, he gets saved, he becomes a Christian. And there's a massive cost to this from him. I mean, it's his family essentially disowning him. They don't come to his wedding. You know, there's a huge, huge cost to this. But I love it in the book. It's just like, but it's absolutely worth it. And he lists everything he's lost, but it's totally worth it. Totally worth it. And it's interesting, the book talks about his friend who's the one who shares the gospel with him and keeps sharing it and keeps sharing it. And there's a real boldness about him. He really just keeps going with it. He keeps going, he keeps sharing the gospel, keeps going. He doesn't do the whole thing, oh, you guys are like, oh, I'm a Muslim. He's like, okay, that's fine. He's like, well, no, 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 no. You need to hear this message. And we see that boldness with the disciples here as well. They don't shrink back from this opposition, but they boldly proclaim the truth. And that is, that's my prayer for us. You know, as we sit here in this Sunday morning, in this nice little sleepy suburb, I say sleepy because most people probably are still asleep. But, you know, my prayer for us is that the Holy Spirit would empower us to speak the truth boldly. Now, what do I mean by boldly? I don't mean you have to stand in front of the Sanhedrin. You know, you have to get a crowd of 70 people. I mean boldly just speaking the gospel confidently and unapologetically. You know, to be able to share that. 
we'd be able to speak the truth boldly in the situations that we find ourselves in this week. And also my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would, would also send in a bit of the artillery into our lives as well. Would actually just send some dreams and visions and conviction to the people we're going to talk to as well. That's my prayer that we would see some of that this week. See some conversations that we did not expect we were going to have. Because actually the Holy Spirit is going ahead of us. Bombarding Satan's defenses and and just opening people's lives to the gospel. One final thing I want to share. I actually like Marmite now. I do. Yeah. Someone came and said to me, it's quite nice on toast. So I put it on toast. It's quite nice on toast. I'm not sure I have a spoonful. I mean, that's a bit over the top, but it's quite nice on toast. Now, if my 10-year-old self heard that me stand up here and say, look, I like Marmite. I'd be completely perplexed. But I do. It's, I like Marmite. And you know, <laughs> I say that, and it's kind of a bit funny. But the reality is, if I can be converted to Marmite, <laughs> I think even the most anti-Christian person can be converted to the Lord. Okay. <laughs> All right. Don't quote me on that reasoning. But you know what? You know what? God can do big things. God can save Nabil Qureshi. <laughs> God can save even the most unlikely person, yeah? I like Marmite now. So I just, just think of that. I like Marmite now. Who in your life in 10, 15, 20 years might actually be standing and saying, you know what, I believe in Jesus right now. And you'd be sitting thinking, there's no way I can imagine you would ever be saying that. That's the kind of stuff the Holy Spirit does. That's what he does when he gets working. And I just want us to make room for him to work in people's lives. To bring change. You know, I, um, when I was at uni, I had to do a Latin class. Uh, have you ever done a class in Latin? Uh, anyway, I, I wasn't a massive fan. But basically, we had to sit in a little group, 10 of us, maybe this book. It was completely in Latin. All right? Now, I don't know whether the teacher was lazy or whatever. But anyway, there was a 10 of us students and her. And you just have the book. And what you do is you all have the book. And you have to read a line. The line's in Latin. And you just translate it. Translate a line. Next person. Translate a line. Translate a line. And that was it for like an hour and a half. Like it was just like oh, that was what we did. But I'm reading this book and, and we're translating, and then I come to this bit, and the book's about like this family who are set like I don't know back in the Roman Empire, and then we're reading through the book, and then the family gets saved, and we're actually translating Latin, which is like, oh, I now believe that Jesus is my Lord. I love Jesus. Jesus is amazing. And we're in this like secular class. Nobody else is a Christian and all like translating Jesus and how amazing Jesus is and how much this, especially the lady of the family, how much she absolutely loves Jesus. And it was really kind of heartwarming, you know, aside from the Latin and having to translate it, but just how much she loved Jesus. And I think that's the reality of what just hit me as I got to the end of this was just how amazing Jesus is. And how beautiful he is. And and ultimately, that is what the Holy Spirit does. He focuses on how amazing Jesus is and also how worth he is. How worthwhile Jesus is. You know, Jesus is worth being imprisoned for. Yes? Easier said than done, but yeah. He's He's worth our family rejecting us for. Yeah? He's worth devoting our lives to. He's worth losing stuff for. He's worth losing out financially for. The new life we have in Jesus is so worth it, whatever it costs. I, I was at a conference recently and there was a guy there from Eritrea. 
Muslim guy, became a Christian, his family completely disowned him. His wife, two kids, completely disowned him. And the guy who was interviewing him on the stage just went for it. He said, is it worth it? He's like, yeah, it's worth it. It's a big decision. None of us ever have to make that decision, but Jesus is worth that. And notice the apostles here, they never ask God, you know, at the end, they've been flogged, which is a horrible beating. They never ask God, why would you let all this happen to us? Why do we have to suffer so much? They don't ask that at all. What do they do instead? They rejoiced because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. And they kept proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And that is, I think that's the model for us to keep proclaiming, keep being ready to share the name of Jesus to whoever asks or whoever wants to know.